Welcome to Murderous Mermaids with Martinis, a podcast discussing all things horror. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Angie. And uh, spoiler alert. Most of the titles we'll be discussing are relatively well known, but just in case you haven't seen any of the films or television shows that we'll be discussing, we're going to make sure we put uh, the titles in all of our episodes so that you have been forewarned. You have been forewarned. Today's episode will be focusing on Creature from the Black Lagoon, the classic from 1954, and last year's Oscar winner for Best Picture, Shape of Water. Yes, yeah, soon to be known as uh, Best Popular Film category. Yeah. We know a lot of people have talked about Shape of Water, but we felt we should add our two cents to that ongoing discussion, particularly since it seems like curious timing that right after a genre film like Shape of Water even if it's artfully done still I think a lot of people recognize it as a genre film wins best picture the Oscar committee proposes we should have a best popular picture yeah it seems like Shape of Water made some waves and there might be a ripple effect (laughs) puns fully intended (laughs) Uh, we also want to add the extra caveat that in this episode, we talk about the tragic feline deaths in Shape of Water, and my cat Oliver has a very strong response to this. So just so you know, he's, he's making sad sounds in the background, but he's totally fine. He goes through a daily ritual of dragging his little cat blanket through the house with that sound effect. It just Don't worry, he, he's healthy and happy. It's just... I think it was definitely this time in response to the discussion of the cat death though. Yeah, he's very against it. As we all are. Spoiler (laughs) alert. Now, I know that it seems like a lot of people have talked about Shape of Water, uh, both um, in online commentary, uh, critical reviews, and uh, on a number of podcast episodes. And we're part of those numbers too. Um, and you know, I feel like you know the movie did win an Oscar this year, so it's not totally passe to talk about it yet. Uh, but it's one of those films that we feel like we need to discuss. And so we thought we would try and mix it up a little bit um, by rewatching uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon from the 1950s, which is, I think, the obvious sort of origin or inspiration material for Shape of Water. Um, And so talk about that a little bit because this was a fun sort of like um, retro film to rewatch. I hadn't seen it since I was like, I don't know, eight years old or something like that. Yeah, I was really young the last time I watched it too. So rewatching it, um, I don't remember being scared as a a child when I watched it, but rewatching it, I definitely saw the horror elements that they were introducing and had an appreciation for them. And then also knowing that this film was done in 3D, thinking about what that would have looked like in 3D um, in a movie theater when the hand is reaching or you see the the monster and the endless swimming underwater scenes. Yeah, there's so much footage of people just swimming underwater for long stretches of time. No dialogue. Um, no voiceover, maybe some mood music. 
mm-hmm. when you know the the creature is starting to lurk. Um, but you know, it was a little bit more slow moving than I thought it would be. Um, and yeah, I remember when I watched this as a kid, it didn't scare me, and I remember feeling bad for the creature. And I'm like, why are they trying to hurt him immediately? Like, what? Why is that their gut reaction? Although watching it as an adult, I picked up that they tried to contextualize that the creature was killing humans unprovoked. Um, when they have like the the camp of, I guess, assistance to the scientists um, be killed. That, I guess, just didn't stay on my radar at all when I had seen it as a kid. Um, But I do think they do a pretty decent job of trying to make you both fear and be sympathetic towards the creature. Mm -hmm. Not in the same way that they do with The Shape of Water, though, where they really try to attach human emotion to amphibian man in Shape of Water. We don't really see that with Creature from the Black Lagoon. We see more of an instinctual like he likes the woman, he's predatory towards the woman. There's not necessarily um, a love interest or an emotion that they attach to it. Yeah, um, and I think Gilman, as he's referred to in Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, is so visually off-putting or different from the human characters that the his appearance, I think, is meant to be sort of unsettling and frightening for both the viewers and the human characters in the film. Um, so he's in some ways like it's a rehash of you know the Beauty and the Beast storyline or maybe he's misunderstood mm-hmm. and doesn't know how to respectfully communicate to Kay, the uh, super scientist assistant, that he likes her. Mm-hmm. And who wouldn't like Kay? Everyone should like Kay. Mm-hmm. I, I want to know like what her secret is to not having... Um, like she has perfect makeup and perfect hair and it's like well-styled hair even though she's gone swimming in what looked like swampy waters <laughs> it was a black lagoon it was a black lagoon <laughs> <laughs> and it's humid like this is supposed to take place in the amazon there's no way makeup and hair would hold up like that well and she has a lot of costume changes she has a fabulous wardrobe she has a fabulous wardrobe all the men on the boat are like in like shabby, dirty work clothes and/or bathing suits. They have like one of two options. She has more options. She does. That makes her very attractive to the creature. Because he's probably not used to seeing such a <laughs> fabulously put together person on a beat up boat. <laughs> yeah. And- she's dressed for a cruise liner, and she's like on like a little dinghy. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if that's a, the proper term for it. I don't really know like boat classifications, but like it's, it's worse than the SSO, SS Minnow from Gilligan's Island. Like this is not a great boat. Yeah, no, it's definitely a work boat, and she's definitely um, dressed for some other occasion. But um, I think that it's important to talk a little bit about the uh, science of the film versus the. Um, I don't know, the creationism of the film. So you're talking evolution and creationism. It's a difficult word to say. It was difficult. I got it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I guess that's not something you would expect to see in like a 
B horror movie from the 50s. Um, so I guess it's trying to be topical and tapping into different scientific debates uh, at the time period. But I think it's also using um, debates about evolutionary theory as a way to explain the origins of uh, an otherwise otherworldly figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the beginning it it actually says something like in the beginning <laughs> where it's quoting from Genesis from the Bible. Um, in Shape of Water we don't have that so much, but he is billed as a god in Shape of Water, where yeah. in Creature he's clearly not. He's beyond time itself. Yeah, he's a relic. Yes, which is why the uh, the arm that the scientists, are they archaeologists or scientists? I don't know. If we, just, we, we watched this last week, and I still can't remember if they were scientists or archaeologists and or a combination of both. Maybe both. Maybe both. But they're... They're scientifically trained in some way. At least that's the premise that the film is, is putting forward. And they're very committed to sharing their research with the world in various ways, no matter the costs mm-hmm. and human life involved. Um, but the I guess our first glimpse at the creature is really not the creature itself, but the uh, fossilized arm of a former creature. Although we never see the creature in the context of... I'm assuming Gilman is a man because he's called Gilman, um, but we don't. We never see him in the context of being with other Gil people. Mm, yeah, he doesn't seem to have any family or relatives, or he's like the last known Gilman. Yeah, we don't know. It's really kind of interesting. So, so how do they survive? And specifically, if he is endangered or the last of his species, then capturing him, taking him back, and putting him on display would be detrimental to that species. If he does happen to have a counterpart that he could procreate with, that would basically be the end of them. Yeah. When did the Endangered Species Act come out? Probably way after this film. I do not know. I am not an expert by any means in that field. (laughs) <laughs> Nor am I, but I was just wondering, like, I, it, I wonder if that would have been, like, less on the radar of the audience at the time watching this. Because mm. watching it now, it's like, wow, like, you're just going to, like, default kill him if you can't capture him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's and, pretty bad. And so we were watching the film, and they're dumping this toxin into the water to get, try to get him out. It's a uh, rhodonone. They like to say rutinone in the movie, though, which I would like to think is not just a mispronunciation, but an intentional choice because they're trying to root out the gill man, but I'm probably way off the mark. But the point is, this is a real substance. Like, we thought it was, you know, maybe fictional for the movie, like they're dumping this toxin into the water. No, I looked it up. This is a real chemical that's still being used today for fishing. They dump it into waters, it kills the fish, then they just scoop them out of the water and serve them to us. But, <laughs> but according to the internet, which is always true, this is, not, <laughs> this is not harmful or toxic to humans. Which made me think in the film when they actually dump it, it doesn't, it does harm Gilman a little bit, but it's, it's not toxic to him in the way that it, it would kill other fish. So that kind of means he's a little bit humanoid. Yeah, more man than Gil. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's still kind of frightening to think that we could be consuming fish products that have rotenone in it. I don't know if I trust the interwebs quite as much as you do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, luckily we're not fish. True. But if you eat fish, you're still ingesting it. Yeah. It's supposed to be non-toxic. I don't know. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I hope that's true. Regardless, it's not great for the environment, I would guess. Well, it's definitely not great for the fish. It's not great for the fish. And so I, it was interesting to me to, know, to learn from watching this film from 1954 that this chemical has been used up till today in fishing. Who would have thought a B film from 1954 would have an actual scientific lesson in it for us? <laughs> it's amazing. And I also learned about the Devonieri... The age of the fish. The Devonian era, yes. Devonian era, yes. I don't know how I could not remember because they say that so many times in the film. Anytime they can work in Devonian, uh, they do. So I feel like you know some research went into the script in some form and they wanted to maximize all of those big scientific words whenever possible. Mm -hmm. And also try to scare us just a little bit with what might be out there that we don't know about. Yes, lurking in a lagoon that has been, I guess, off of the main Amazon River in a little enclave, mm-hmm. untouched for centuries, apparently. Mm-hmm. Like, you think you may know what's on the Amazon River, but you don't know the whole story, apparently. Yeah, and you know, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the hand, the fact that a lot of times we only see the hand? Yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's, you know, from a filmmaking perspective, it's got to be like a practical choice. Like there's only so many things you can do to frighten the audience. And uh, when you have a maybe a limited special effects budget, so like seeing that lurking hand all the time is a maybe a shorthand of saying, oh, the creature's coming, even if you don't have the whole creature in the screenshot. But I think, you know, from an interpretation perspective, it's really useful because it means as the as an audience, we're sort of denied being able to see the creature in his totality for much of the film. We only see like little scary glimpses of him instead of seeing him for who for his his main identity. And I think in some ways it's a way of emphasizing how he's not human because we're not able to fully see him ever. Mm-hmm. And then um, just the fact that he, I'm just going to bring up the bat really quickly. Okay, so he takes Kay into his cave, his lair, and in 3D this would probably be horrifying. Well, for you it would be. (laughs) There's a bat, a giant bat that flies right towards the camera, and in 3D that just had to be too much for audiences. Like, this this is what makes it a horror film. I would laugh. (laughs) Probably because I'd be laugh watching you freak out <laughs> over a giant rubber bat that's going. <laughs> this was more horrifying than the creature. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting that sort of I guess mixing um, attributes from other horror movie monsters. Like that's what I expect. Like in Dracula's lair, not the creature's lair. Mm-hmm. And only one bat. Only one. It, you know. It, it was a, a effective bat, though. It was. So I think that that pretty much t- 
takes us to the point where we can talk about shape of water and the similarities and differences. Yeah, because like the most helpful reminder for me was that in Creature from the Black Lagoon, the creature is emphasized as being more creaturely than uh, human-like, and he's pretty demonized by the human characters for a variety of reasons. Even if in retrospect, as a modern audience watches it, we feel a little conflicted about that. Yeah. Alright, so um, I guess now it's time to talk about Shape of Water. We talked a little bit about Creature from the Black Lagoon, the film's clear uh, forerunner. Um, so, Shape of Water, do you think this counts as a horror film since it's inspired by the aesthetic and some of the plot points of Creature from the Black Lagoon? I don't feel like it was billed as a horror film. It was kind of more like a fantasy or, you know, like the princess at the beginning. It has a fairy tale yeah. uh, feel to it. <clears throat> but um, I think there's definitely aesthetics that lend to the horror genre. Um, the torture of the creature, Amphibian Man, is clearly horrific and uh, dark. And even the coloring and the shadowing throughout the film feel um, like an old-style horror film to me. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I do think maybe the overarching genre is more like fantasy, even maybe fantasy slash romance. Um, but I don't know, the moments that are more horrific, I find really interesting sort of, I guess, punctuations in the film. Um, for me, the cat-eating scene was pretty bad. Yeah, I... I haven't read many articles that address the cat eating, but apparently this is a thing in Hollywood with cats. You said you've read some articles. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I don't remember if I sent it to you or not. Um, I've been meaning to. Um, I read an uh, editorial that um, was talking about, um, I think what the, the writer termed like a recent trend in um, horror or genre films of treating cats as disposable, and they they mentioned the the scene from Shape of Water and uh, Stranger Things season two, where um, uh, the family cat gets it mm-hmm. um, as a way of like a notable contrast. Like when we see dogs die in horror films, because dogs die all the time in horror films, and it's framed, I think, in a emotional way that's different and kind of like I don't know makes the viewer feel really bad about it. Yeah, well, in Shape of Water, the cat owner, cat's owner, does not even seem to be bothered by the eating of his cat and even lets Amphibian Man play with his other cat later on. And the Amphibian Man is billed as some wild creature and you just, like, they made an excuse for him. Oh, well, he's wild. These things happen. He ate your cat. You have no remorse for this. It's so strange to me. It is, it is strange, and it seems a little out of character for what we've seen before with the uh, the different characters, where it seems like maybe they would be upset about the, the loss. Um, and I felt like it was a moment where it made it harder to see how the film was um, trying to make sure that we saw Amphibian Man as... Um, more human and less creature because it's the the moment I think that gives you sort of the visceral reminder of no matter how Eliza views him and treats him the rest of the world sees him in this way 
like how the cat saw him. <laughs> For a second. <laughs> For a second, before it tragically died. But this cat eating isn't new. We've seen this before, almost as a comedy. Yes. In Alf. Yes, yes. And, I mean, I guess in the television show Alf, though, like, it is a puppet. Yeah. So, I guess that's why it's billed as humorous. Like, when he's, uh, he puts kittens on a sandwich and he tries to eat a live kitten sandwich, which adult me finds absolutely, like, horrifying. But I guess it's supposed to be kind of funny because it's obviously like a, a hand puppet that's never going to succeed with this. <laughs> but how nonchalant people are. I'm like, yeah, it's a creature from another world. It eats cats, of course. Oh. Yeah, so I think that might be one of the... Speaking of cats, if you hear anything in the background, it's one of my felines making a fuss. He feels very strongly about the uh, anti-cat message of Shape of Water. <laughs> it is one of the more horrifying ideas in the film, but it's not... They don't do it in a graphic way. No, they don't. It's abrupt. It is abrupt. It's quite, hopefully, painless. One could hope. One could hope. But when you watched this film, did you think it was a horror film? Did you think horrific or horror? For me, um, after the film in the theater, the thing that everyone was abuzz about was the fact that Eliza had sex with the amphibian man. Like, this was the thing that people were like, oh my gosh, how could she? Like, but we've seen other films where uh, maybe it wasn't as overt, but the similar things have happened and it wasn't as jarring to people. Yeah, I didn't see this one in the theater. I saw this one on DVD release. So I would be curious uh, what the, the audience reaction was in the theater. Um, yeah, that is, I think, I, I, I think the cat scene for me stood out because I like cats. But other than that, yeah, I think the, the sexual encounter between Eliza and Amphibian Man is sort of the thing that, to have buzz about. I think partially because it's a scene that it happens and then it doesn't just go away. Like there's a discussion in the workplace about it mm -hmm. where like, Eliza like goes through some hand motions like to explain the mechanics of their getting together. Um, so it forces you to have to continue to address this part of the dynamic between the two of them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I imagine, I guess, people were grossed out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, is, that is a good way to say it. Yeah, they were um, definitely like appalled. Appalled. <laughs> but... <laughs> Like I said, we've seen this in other films like Beauty and the Beast. We've seen it in The Little Mermaid where there's, you know, that dynamic of human-non-human -human interaction. And it's never been as overt as this maybe or as explicitly described as this with the hand motions. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's partially because like the examples you gave of uh, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, um, they are non-human characters that at times occupy a human state because mm. like the beast begins as a human who gets transformed and maybe can transform back the little mermaid starts as a mermaid 
takes on a fully human shape. And so maybe it's more palatable to viewers or readers if they're thinking of the non-human form as transitory, whereas amphibian man, like, no, that's, that's, his, that's his form. Yeah, but Eliza is also transformed. She becomes, right. she becomes a mer-creature of some sort. I like to think that she becomes some kind of mermaid in my mind because we never see her full transformation. Yeah. So maybe people are so off put by it because their sexual encounter is before she's become a mer creature of sorts of her own. Mm-hmm. Although she has the um, she has scars on her neck, right? Right. So is it a return to her? F- I guess um, original state. Original state. I would say yes, because um, one of the qualities we've seen in Amphibian Man is he does regenerative things, like regrows hair on bald men Mm -hmm. or heals a wound. So it seems like if he, when he places his uh, hands on, are they hands? I don't know. Web? Yeah, sure, let's go with hands. When he places his hands on her... um, scars and they become gills if he has the ability to regenerate it would seem like they were originally originally gills and he's regenerated them right because when he puts his hand on the bald man's head the hair grows back right so that would make sense i guess with the the i guess the world view of the film of like how the the magic works then maybe people just didn't see the foreshadowing when they had their (laughs) encounter and the end of the film should make them feel better about that. Yeah, I don't think it did. Maybe they need to watch it again. Maybe. But I also think it's kind of an important thing to note then, like, if that does make viewers uncomfortable, then, like, what does that say? Um, And how does the the film maybe um, intentionally try to push viewers outside of that comfort zone to maybe rethink various things like I think it's also a film that is trying to explore at various levels the notion of prejudice which -hmm. I think is why the um the the time period it's set in is sort of like an unspoken backdrop for that right yeah and the um the humans are the ones specifically the the scientists the experimenters um are played to be very evil very bad and not um understanding of other cultures or or other in general Mm -hmm. i like the film though i like the film i really love the aesthetics and the the cinematography and all of that was really really beautiful i really like the um the segment where i guess it's like eliza's imagination is the musical number (laughs) and like where, where she's like she has a voice of sorts at that particular moment and I was I was thinking when I watched it like you would never see this in most like more I guess traditional horror takes and so I feel like the like the genre play that we have with it allows for a lot of sort of interesting variations that we wouldn't get if it was more of a up-to-date remake of say Creature from the Black Lagoon. Right yeah it is definitely um, a much more modern and I feel like even has multiple layers more so than the Black Lagoon did. 
Yes, I think that's a fair assessment and probably also a testament to like budget <laughs> and uh, a number of differences. But remember, Creature from the Black Lagoon could have been seen in 3D. Yes, if you lived in a, <laughs> in a big city and went to a fancy theater. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe since we haven't experienced Black Lagoon in that context, we're um, selling it a little short. <laughs> Still a good film, especially for its time. And definitely heavily influenced um, Shape of Water, so Shape of Water wouldn't have potentially been what it is without that initial film. Thanks for listening, and join us next week for another horror discussion. And another martini. Sounds good.